This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini-series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care for your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Iftikhar Kalu, a Mayo Clinic consultant and professor of medicine in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine Department of Cardiovascular Medicine here in Rochester, Minnesota. And we will be discussing genetic informed risk assessments. Dr. Kalu is a professor of medicine here at Mayo in the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine. He completed his residency fellowship in clinician investigator pathway training here at Mayo. His research laboratory focuses on the genetic epidemiology of coronary heart disease and implementation of genomic medicine. He heads the atherosclerosis and lipid genomics laboratory chairs the Cardiovascular Genomics Task Force, and directs the early atherosclerosis and familial hypercholesterolemia clinics at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He is the principal investigator of the Mayo Electronic Medical Records and Genomics eMERGE grant. He is a principal investigator in the eMERGE and also the PrimeMed networks and serves on the U.S. National Advisory Council on Human Genome Research. Thank you so much for joining us today, Iftikhar. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to join you for this conversation today. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you here. I know you've participated with us before in podcasts, but I'm particularly pleased you were able to come back. You know, we've talked a lot in podcasts about genetic conditions or genetic risk, and the focus has been, for the most part, on monogenetic, where you inherit a gene and that increases your risk for a disease. But I know a lot of your work and a lot of your interest has been on conditions where multiple genes play a role and may increase risk. Can you talk briefly about the kind of conditions that we're starting to recognize are influenced by multiple genetic factors? So Denise, I do have an interest in history and I always kind of think back because we learn a lot from history. And if I may, I'll just give a little detour here of the history of genetics. And of course, it started with Mendel, and then he, he did have these traits which were kind of dominant or recessive. But then later in the 19th century, there were a lot of people who were interested in traits that were in plants and animals because they were so important because, you know, it was plant breeding or animal breeding that had a lot of economic impact. They kind of looked at traits in these individuals. And then, of course, later in humans. And what they see is, for example, if we just take humans, that there are tall parents. They usually have taller children. And that's not a single gene inheritance. So that is actually a collection of small genes. It's not like, you know, it's a dominant, so the child will be average or short more likely he's going to be taller. And a lot of our traits actually passed on by these multiple genes. So it's not just diseases that you were referring to. You know, height, intelligence, um, behavior, 
almost everything has a genetic component. And a lot of the times the genetic component is these effects of many genes. They're each uh, at a gene level small, but when they accumulate, they affect traits. So today, I think our focus is obviously on disease predisposition. That's what you and I deal with day to day. Just like the other traits, all common diseases are to some degree affected by these polygenes. So accumulation of genetic variants in different genes, each variant having a small effect, but cumulatively, they can have quite significant effect. And if you look at the distribution of these effects, it's like a bell curve. So some people on the extremes of the curve are going to have very different disease predisposition than those that are in the middle. And that's really exciting. That's the new advance, the new insight that we are now learning that allows us to use this information in our day-to-day -day practices for almost any condition. But of course, most importantly for common conditions, it's diabetes, obesity, heart disease, um, atrial fibrillation, aneurysms, you name it, cancer, breast cancer, or colon cancer, almost every trait or disease is influenced by these polygenes. I had a conversation, or at least an email conversation, because this study you're involved in, this eMERGE study, I actually had a patient. My first experience, I've got a report, patient did the eMERGE, eMERGE study, no family history necessarily that I recall of breast cancer, had not had genetic testing for breast cancer, so wasn't known to be BRCA1 or BRCA2 or Czech or any of the other now identified variants that put her at increased risk of breast cancer. And yet her eMERGE study came back and said, she's at increased risk of breast cancer. And I don't remember the exact number, but it was maybe 25% compared to the normal population of maybe 12% by age 90. And then I reached out to you and said, what do I do? Do I send her to breast clinic? And you said, yeah, it's probably reasonable. So Tell me about this eMERGE study. What are you doing and how are you looking at data? I mean, this sounds like AI, artificial intelligence kind of stuff or big data stuff, trying to look at these different itty bitty pieces of our traits, which are polygenetic, and then looking at risk, trying to use genetic assessment to say, this is risk for a condition. So what's that about? Yeah. Thanks for that question, Denise, because I uh, you know, that's an important study that we're doing at Mayo and actually at nine other sites across the country. And it is really to test this paradigm that we can use these polygenic risk scores in the clinic and people can act on it, like, just like the example you gave. Essentially, these scores are derived from what we call genotyping arrays. And a lot of these arrays have a million SNPs or variants across the genome, across our genome. And we have very good data that for different diseases, we know that we can create these scores because what are called genome-wide association studies where you take cases and controls and you see which genetic variants differ in frequency. And that information is used to compile a polygenic score for many conditions, for example, breast cancer that you alluded to. As I mentioned, when we uh, compute these scores. And of course, as you said, it's a big data. It's like taking information from million SNPs and then estimating the score. When we plot the score, it's distributed in a bell shape. So most people are in the center. Their risk is not going to change much. But if you're at the end of the bell curve, then you're going to be either lower or higher. And in, in this case, we're focused on the higher risk. So this patient was at the end of the bell curve. She was probably in the top fifth percentile. And that would mean that her risk is almost like that of having a breast cancer mutation, like a BRCA mutation. 
So th this is something that we would not have known unless we did this polygenic risk score. And so in this person, the, the risk is almost doubled and it makes sense for her to be screened earlier and to you know see a specialist in order to do the screening and the next steps, maybe it's chemoprophylaxis, maybe it's other things. The same paradigm we can apply to many diseases. In eMERGE, we are studying 10 common conditions. So it's the cancers of breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer. Then we have chronic kidney disease. We have uh, high cholesterol. We have atrial fibrillation. We have diabetes. We have obesity. And we have cor coronary heart disease or heart attack. Enrolling participants, we are then measuring these scores. And then we are returning the scores to those that are at high risk, which would be that they're at that end of the bell curve. Typically, our threshold is there at the top fifth or top third percentile. And what we have seen is that from previous results and data that have being in that top fifth or third percentile is almost having that monogenic disease that you were referring to. So for a, a breast cancer, it would be like having a BRCA mutation. For heart disease, it would be having like a familial hypercholesterolemia mutation. Why is this important? Well, it's important because breast cancer might be, the mutation might be in one in 250 or one in 300. A heart disease, I know for sure it's in one in 250. So that's 0.04%, right? We are talking about, if you take heart disease, 5%. So 5% of the population, that's almost tenfold higher than the 0.05. So there's tenfold more people that have the same risk as a monogenic, but they're kind of hidden, right? They're not plain, they're hidden it's, we call it the uh, hiding in plain sight. So this is a really great way to detect these patients that have high risk by measuring these polygenic risk scores. They're almost like 10 times more common than the Mendelian. And so in eMERGE, what we're doing is these 10 diseases, we're not giving this information back in isolation. We will do the monogenic testing also for breast cancer, colon cancer, heart disease. And then we take family history as well so we give all of that information back to the provider so that they can make decisions that are suitable for the patient. That's actually extremely exciting because, you know, in my practice in primary care, I continually, when I talk with women about getting mammograms, you know, the comment is, well, no one in my family has breast cancer. And my response is always, that's true for the vast majority of women. As you've just pointed out, the numbers the magnitude of risk as you identify this large group of, you know, the uh, in plain sight people who we don't know is a vast majority of individuals. And, and I know previously we were talking with Dr. Sameter, talking with Jewel down in Arizona with his work looking at colon cancers. It's the same thing. There are a number of colon cancers they have identified where they're not Lynch. They're not the currently recognized mutations. And uh, my suspicion would be is that if you go back and did polygenic risk scores on that group of individuals, they would identify as being extremely high. And so the work you're doing, in some respect, would be revolutionary for what it would mean because you're talking about things that are actionable diabetes. Obesity is a tough one, but now we have new drugs, if right. we can keep them in stock, to potentially make a difference, can be preemptive for some of the cancers. I mean, is this knowledge and the things you're learning in eMERGE, are these new concepts and new ways of thinking about 
disease or is this stuff that we're just starting to publish on and starting to come into mainstream thinking? Well, I mean, this whole revolution started, I think, around 17 years ago when these what we call the genome-wide association studies, GWAS, as people call them, began to be published. There was a particularly landmark paper where they looked at seven diseases in England and they had a set of common controls and they found genetic variants for each of them that were quite significantly associated with the disease. And since then, the databases have grown and we have now have hundreds of susceptibility variants for each disease. So that allows us to create these scores. And so all of that up to now had been essentially getting more and more of these variants identified. And in the last few years, people started estimating or calculating these risk scores and showing, hey, look, these are, as I just mentioned, they're almost like monogenic if you're in the bell curve extreme. But this eMERGE study is the first to actually, on a large scale across the country, try to implement this in real world practice. So all these participants that are at Mayo, we are hoping to have about 20 to 50, uh, of whom like um, through 350 will be adolescents. We are doing this real time and clinicians like you are going to get that information and then decide with the patient what to do in a shared decision-making fashion. And so in that sense, eMERGE is novel and unique. This is the first large implementation study of polygenic risk scores. When you do the polygenic risk score, you mentioned the family history. Is that part of the polygenic risk score or is it only the genetic pieces that you're looking at as you develop the score? That's a great question. <laughs> it's a very, very interesting uh, observation. So the observation is that the polygenic risk score does not correlate very well with family history. Now that's counterintuitive. You would have thought, well, I mean, if it's in the family, maybe your polygenic risk scores are also high, but interestingly, it's not. Now that's actually a good thing because it means we can add both, right? Because they're giving us different information. So that's the beauty of it. Now, why might that be? There are a lot of postulates about why this is. The commonest is that when you take family history, it represents not only genetic factors, but also common environment and gene environment interactions, which are not captured by the polygenic risk score. So as a result, they are not very strongly correlated, which as I said, is, is actually a good thing because then you can get additive information from both the family history and the polygenic risk score. And that's why in eMERGE, we are emphasizing both. We are also asking people to fill out their family history pedigree and then we do the estimation of the genetic risk score. And we can have some people actually where they're uncommon, but they unfortunately drew the short straw and they have the monogenic, they have the high polygenic and their family history. So they would be at the highest risk. Whereas others, you know, they might have just the polygenic score so that you could have different combinations and different combinations would mean different risks. Sort of answering the question I was going to ask about what about the exposome? And, and that influencing genes and in some of the other things we know that can potentially alter genetic factors. Do we think that this is sort of a stable kind of genetic, kind of polygenetic thing? I mean, you talked about getting younger people, adolescents, maybe children. Is this something that would be, a, you're looking at childhood conditions, or is this sort of the same conditions that you're seeing in adults? 
Great question. No, we are looking at different conditions. There are four conditions, asthma, type one diabetes, type two diabetes, and obesity. So those are the four conditions for the children. And I would say for that aspect, it's more an exploration. You know, we want to test how do adolescents and their parents react to this information and what do they do uh, on that basis? I think there's, of course, more data actionability for the adult ones, but this is more, I think, I would say more towards research, whereas the other, the adult project is more implementation. Uh, so I think that that's the goal here. You were asking about actionability, Denise? Whether or not you think that these genomic makeups or these polygenomic conditions, whether they're stable, or do you think these are mutable in terms of through life? And, and that's that's a tough question because we don't, I think, really know. But, you know, as we think about the my patient with the breast cancer risk now, you know, is that something that, you know, one would assume that maybe carcinogens and some of the other things we might ingest might change it. But I don't know if there are thoughts about, are these things that people at point A or point B, they have it then, and that's probably, as you make your point estimate, is that stable or is it like a hazard ratio that, oh my God, it's going to change big as you go on? I love that question. Such a great question. There are two issues here. One is that the science is evolving. So if I measured your or a patient's polygenic risk score, and then we continue to accrue data, so it might be slightly different five years as knowledge evolves and we learn more. But I think that the change will not be significant. If you were really in the high risk, you would probably remain in the high risk. However, in the middle, you could shift a little bit. And that's because knowledge keeps accruing. But I, I would say we are at the asymptotic line of the curve. So we're probably at the flatter end. So the change is not going to be huge. So that's number one. The other answer here is that these risk scores are modified by several things like age, for example, is the most common. So for, if I take heart disease, we know that the risk from the polygenic uh, score is higher at younger ages, say less than 55. And as we get older, the genetic signal is maybe diluted by environmental factors. So it's not as predictive. So the risk is stronger uh, at a younger age. And that's why I think maybe doing these in young adulthood is a great step. And then you can start, you know, at least not with drugs, with lifestyle, being aware that you're at risk. And then, you know, at least doing a lipid profile, exercising and, you know, doing things that are relatively simpler before we go on to the drug therapy. And that's something that maybe we need more data on, but certainly lifestyle or simple screening tests like a lipid profile could be done in a young adult if they had a high polygenic risk score. So context like that, you talked about the exposome, I would say, I guess deserves a separate discussion actually, uh, because that's such an important point you raised. But I, I think the short answer is A, these scores can change just because of knowledge accruing and B, their information is context dependent. And the most important context is age. And typically, we see that they're more predictive at a younger age, at least for heart disease. Now, let me actually try to answer your question about exposome. I think that's such an important point, because while we are very excited about genetic information, we cannot forget about the environment. And, you know, it may not be as fashionable, but environment is key. Social determinants of health are so important. 
we are actually looking at this very question and our initial analysis has some very surprising results, which I'll share at some later point. But measuring environmental, at least simply by social determinants of health or by a more granular way by doing the exposome is critical because that's going to be a big determinant of disease risk. I don't think we should get carried away by genetics alone. We have to recognize there are many other factors such as environment that play a big role in common diseases. It's funny because you deal with cardiovascular disease every single day, the sickest of the sick and everything else. And and I do too. I just had a patient today. We looked at her lipid panel, which was not terrible in her early 60s. And I calculate my ASCVD score on every patient. I look at their lipids. I have it up my risk scores up in my snap thing or something. And and so I get on every patient. I look at their lipids and I do their thing and I go, well, your, your risk is 4.9%. And I talk about, okay, let's use a simulator and let's put you on something. HDL is high. It's like 75 and total cholesterol is like 254. I said, so let's put you on a stand. Let's make it 200. And your number went from 4.9 to 4.2. And I said, so what do you think? I said, but let's make you instead of 60 something, let's make you 70 and a risk went to 14%. So illustrating what you said about the impact of age on cardiovascular disease, but it'll be very interesting as, as your field evolves with this to look at when do we start to do something? Because I had a patient recently in her seventies with horrendous lipids who refuses to go on statins. And she told me, she said, my mother lived 101 with high cholesterol, ate butter every day. Uh, my, but my son's on cholesterol lowering. And I said, so she goes, I'm not going on it. I said, well, what if we did a coronary calcification study? And your coronaries look horrible. Would you go on it? She goes, well, I might. I said, what if they're clean? I'm going to quit checking cholesterol on you. It would be fascinating to have a tool like this to say, hey, you're you're fine. You know, quit checking blood tests that we're not going to do anything about, wasting your money. So you mentioned this is the first time that this has been sort of moved into primetime testing to look at, you know, can we implement it? Does it matter? Will it change things? How far along are you in the study? When will the study be done? When am I going to have the tool in my hands? We are actually uh, hoping to wrap up the recruitment, and the recruitment is 25,000 across the country. I forgot to mention that actually, although Rochester is 2250, we have a partnership with a federally qualified health center in Arizona where we're doing 500 just to increase diversity, which is so important in genetics. We are very pleased with that partnership. So we hope to finish recruitment by June of next year, and we have already started returning results. And then we will measure the outcomes. Of course, those will be short-term outcomes You know, we, to get the longer-term events that will be a longer follow-up. But we would have start publishing data in 25 and 26. And that would guide, you know, further practice, hopefully. And are all the sites doing what your group is doing in trying to return results out to into the hands of the individual's doctors or primary care doctors now and, and looking at what happens? I mean, are you looking at the outcomes like what I did? Are you looking to see what we as the people getting the information do, whether we go, ah, nonsense, let it go, or holy crap, my patient's going to have breast cancer? Exactly. We are trying to be as harmonized as possible across the network. Because if we do it the same way, then we can analyze together and there's more power in the numbers. And exactly, we are looking, we are very much interested in what you do. So we kind of set it up and then we see what you do. So you get the information, 
Now, those that are high risk, we meet them face to face, either virtually in person. And we say, look, this is what it means. We would suggest see your Dr. Dupra, see your primary provider. And then we also send a, a little notice to you. And of course, to the patient is already, and then we watch what happens. What do you do? Do you this, you know, just put it aside or do you say, we better do your CT per carney. I better check your lipids. I better put you on a statin or do a stress test or mammogram. So that's exactly what we are interested in. What does the patient and the provider do together? So we look at near-term outcomes. What tests did you order? Did you put in a new diagnosis? Did you start a new drug? And so those are our main outcomes of interest. Once you finish recruitment and, and you're looking at the results and stuff, what do you see as the next step? Will you identify more conditions that appear to be polygenic? Will you expand your studies looking at these 10 conditions? Uh, I'm sure, as you've pointed out, there are many, many conditions of yeah. you know good health, bad health, and everything in between that are likely the result of multiple gene interactions. So what are the next steps going to be? So I think this is a very important first step. This is actually the first real-world implementation at, on a large scale, I would say in the world, possibly. And so it's momentous in that way. As you said, it's almost a revolutionary concept, very exciting. I like to tell this to um, anybody interested that the framing and risk equation for heart disease was almost exactly published 60 years ago. And today, when you said you were doing your ASCVD calculation, it's very much the same framing gap, almost literally the same, maybe some minor changes. There is not a single biomarker that we have been able to find to add to this, which is a shame. But look at the drugs in the last 60 years. They have completely changed the landscape of cardiology, thrombolytics, statins, ACE inhibitors. We have prolonged patients' lives. We have improved their quality of life immeasurably. But on the biomarker front, we have failed miserably. I think one reason is that who's going to fund these studies, right? I mean, the drug companies, of course, have a motivation to do the drugs, but biomarkers, not so much. So I think that finally we have something that we can use in, as a biomarker that has very meaningful effect. So I think there's actually a lot of other efforts where people are trying to implement it in clinical practice. We want to measure the outcomes and inform further practice changes. There are some very high bars to meet, but I think this is the this first step. And there's also concern that it takes 17, 18 years from a discovery to implementation, and perhaps we can do some implementation studies. I can mention, Denise, that there's a PRS available, actually has been available for the last seven years uh, at Mayo for CHT. It's an earlier version, but we are in the process of creating it. I think that there has been a relative lack of progress in the biomarker field, and this is a very exciting Biomarker. Imagine you could do a single chip and you could get these in polygenic risk scores for at least these 10, 20, however many you want if you have the data from the GWAS. So I would say that at Mayo, our vision is that every person walking in will have the whole genome. And the beauty of the whole genome is we can look at monogenics and we can do the polygenics at the same time. So we can have a really good assessment of the genetic risk of that patient and act accordingly. So I think that's a hugely exciting new potential advance. It's very exciting. And, and I think there will be those individuals who say, I'm not giving you my genome. I'm not doing the genetic testing because what will happen to my insurance? <laughs> you know, will I yes. ever, and I mean, that's, you know, we're talking about testing young people yeah. and I'm in the biobank. So I guess you have my yeah. genome and I'm old, so it won't matter. 
are there implications related to this? I mean, it's research now. That's always, I think, sometimes what I hear. And I have a patient who's refused to go to a genetics counselor. I think there's a familial cancer syndrome in her family. I've done a family tree. I've asked her when the family members have gotten cancer. And I think there's a BRCA2. I do. I believe it in my heart. She will not do testing. She will not go to a genetics counselor because she's scared to death that that's it. I said, you have kids and she won't do it. But it's insurance. It's all of that. I mean, where are we on that landscape? I mean, insurance and things have to come around if we're going to take care of people. Yeah. I mean, this was always a very nettlesome point, but we made big progress. I think it finally took about a decade to go to Congress, but eventually we had this act called GINA, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And that's a huge progress. There are still, unfortunately, some loopholes there. For example, life insurance or long-term disability insurance are not fully covered, but employers cannot discriminate. Insurers cannot discriminate based on genetic testing. At least we made that progress. Hopefully we'll continue to you know, make progress in this arena. Iftikhar, this has been absolutely fascinating. If you could think of two or three take-home messages for our audience related to this amazing information and sort of what's going on now and what's on the horizon, what would be the things that you want to leave our audience thinking about or where we're at now or what you see going on in the future? Well, I think, you know, like you, I'm a practitioner. Many of our researchers at Mayo are clinician investigators. So I am seeing patients and most of my ideas are derived from problems that patients encounter. So I would say that a very simple thing we should all do is pay particular attention to the family history. It's like a free genomics tool. I think it's such a hugely valuable information. Just like you just mentioned that family, you know, something is that person is at high risk. Even if they don't have anything on genetic testing, just because they have family history is very valuable information. So my plea is always, and I think probably all of you do that in any case, but not to forget the value of the family history. The second take-home point is that we are now getting a lot of good information about this polygenic risk. We say in everyday conversation that everything is genetic, and that's actually true. Everything is environmental. That's also true. It's just, you know, their contributions may be stronger in one setting than the other. So I would say that please be aware of the advances that are coming down the road. I think in a few years, we whole genomes will be routine. It's well to be prepared for what's coming down to you as a primary care provider. So polygenic risk scores are going to be part of that revolution and evolution of medicine for the good, hopefully. The third thing I would say, the final thing is that we shouldn't be carried away by new shiny tools. And even though this is something that I'm very much immersed in, I don't think we should forget the environment. I think it's important for us to, you know, now that we have it in electronic health records, social determinants of health, and those are very important contributors to common disease. Perhaps we will have the exposome or we will measure the environment in a more granular fashion that might be through wearables or sensors. So many exciting things happening. But I think those are the three basic things I would like to leave you with is be aware of the importance of family history, be aware of whole genomes and the possibility of polygenic risk scores, and do not forget the environment. Those are 
absolutely key things that none of us should forget. And, you know, I, I can't emphasize more what you said. Uh, family history is a pretty cheap genetic test. I mean, it does That's take good. a few minutes, but, I, you know, for me and all the years I've been doing this, it tends to be a pretty nice way to bond with your patient to show the concern and be very right. patient-centered. Well, today we've been talking about genetic-informed risk assessments with Dr. Iftikhar Kalu. Thank you for your time, Iftikhar. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. See, your genes really do matter. Music